Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how Asian Americans are framed in mainstream news and media and how that framing informs our understanding and discourse around stories of anti-Asian violence, including the shooting of six Asian women and two others in Atlanta and the multiple incidents of hate and violence against Asians here in the Bay Area. My guests are KCBS reporter Holly Kwan and Dr. Wei Ming Dariotis, professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University, affiliate faculty with the Educational Leadership Doctoral Program, and faculty director of CETL, the Center for Equity and Excellence in Teaching and Learning. Dr. Dariotis has asked that I include her positionality statement as part of this broadcast. Though I'm comfortable being addressed as Wei Ming by colleagues in informal settings, my late colleague and dear friend Dr. Dawn Mabalan taught me that as a woman of color, I'm an aspirational role model for other women and feminine identified people, and so I should claim my title. So my preferred form of address by colleagues in formal settings, um, basically any time that you would call a white man doctor or professor, please use that form of address with me as well. I identify as a Chinese Greek, a cisgender bisexual queer woman. I was born in Adelaide, Australia, in the land of the indigenous Karuna Mayuna, and raised in San Francisco, where I currently live and work on the unceded, unyielded territory and traditional home of the Rumeitush Ohlone people. I appreciate this indigenous tradition of land acknowledgements, which non-indigenous people have been being requested to honor for hundreds of years, a request to which we are just now choosing to listen because I am as ashamed of not having known as a child the names of Ohlone peoples as I am of having once teased my Chinese mother for her inability to say words like Palo Alto. I use the pronouns she, her, and I'm exploring using the Chinese gender neutral pronoun ta, despite my imposter syndrome as someone who only studies Chinese as a way of reclaiming the mother tongue I once rejected. Thank you both for joining us today. So I think I want to start by asking you each to frame for us what you're seeing in the news and media, and Holly, for you also, what you're experiencing as a member of the news media as you cover these stories that have been getting attention about Asian violence, uh, Asian American hate. Dr. Dariotis, let me start with you. The news about the Atlanta shootings really has hit my community very hard, just feeling overwhelmed with the the pain of it. And then also trying to come together and going on marches and trying to find a proactive way to respond. We have started a collaborative teaching guide in teaching in days after anti-Asian violence. But the other effect of this news, I think, has actually been to embolden, uh, maybe not exactly copycats, but definitely a, a more public outpouring of anti-Asian violence. Recently in the Bay Area, you might have become aware of the slap and Asian challenge. The mother of a friend of mine was um, attacked down in Woodland Hills. You can see news reports of her. uh, A man came up to her and said he was going to find all the Chinese and kill them. And she had to, you know, try and, you know, escape from that. And I think about her, she's the same age and same ethnicity as my mother, I think about her daughter, who's my friend, and I think about her granddaughter and how this nine-year-old girl is going to grow up forever knowing that because of her race and gender, she will always be seen as a visible target that is a victim that people can, you know, just attack with impunity because nothing bad will happen and people don't even see it 
as a real crime because Asians are the model minority. What you said at the end there, people don't see it as a crime, the, the mainstream sort of viewpoint on it. Holly, I'd love to get your perspective on uh, the recent stories because you're you're in the news media and you've been at KCBS for a long time. Yeah, what your perspective on the whole thing is. You know, on one hand, I, I feel like it was initially surreal because it's like, how can this be happening in, in this day and age now? Also recognizing that the Bay Area is a bubble. And so we realize that that not everything that we think or feel or experience here is the same elsewhere. You know, but then the more I think about it, I'm like, oh, of course, like, wh why wouldn't, why wouldn't we be scapegoated? Uh, why wouldn't this community be scapegoated? Because they've been scapegoated before. When I heard about the Atlanta shootings, you know, I was, because I'm always working, right? I always get the Twitter feeds or the alerts on my phone. And I saw that. And the initial ones came out with investigating a series of, of shootings at a spa. And I'm thinking, a spa? And Atlanta? And, and just my first reaction was like, of course I knew what that meant. And that, that it probably meant a massage parlor. And there probably would be some Asian victims before anybody said anything. Um, just because that's kind of like where your mind goes. For something like this. And then it came out that there were victims and that there were, were these Asian women. And whether police said it was a hate crime or not, you knew it was going to be an issue because there are the optics of it. I was glad to see that the Asian American Journalists Association came out and said, number one, they sent out an email to the members acknowledging what a hard week that was for everybody. The feelings that you you had, you, you may not have known to identify it. You, you didn't know maybe where it came from. But at least I sort of, I felt that message was very reassuring because somebody says, I got you. You know, we understand whatever it is that you're feeling, you're not the only one. And then they also um, put out not a plea, but just a suggestion to newsroom managers to talk to their workers, talk to the reporters, talk to their producers, you know, to see, A, you know, how can we cover this differently? You know, B, how do you, how do you see it? Actually actively looking for a different perspective, whether it is truly something different than how they would have covered it, but at least to give them that voice to, to know that they were, you know, listening to that community. And then also one thing that I saw that they did, and I don't know if they did this before or not, but they sent out a pronouncer so they had some Asian reporters pronouncing the names of all the victims so that they would be pronounced correctly and also been given, you know, the proper respect. And I thought that was very, very good of them. It was so important to at least have that acknowledgement. Let's just get the woman's name right at the very least to give them the respect that they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. The honor and respect that they deserve. And so, Dr. Dariotis, I'm going to come to you in just a moment. But Holly, when you heard the officer in Atlanta say, well, he said it was sex addiction and not a hate crime. And he had a bad day. That he had a bad day. Yeah. I've had a bad day before. I have never thought. Right. That makes no sense. Yeah, exactly. Just like, could you smack your forehead hard enough? Right. It, it was one of those moments, right? Right. How could you, that in itself, I think was very telling. And I'm glad that it was pointed out because I couldn't think that I was the only one who said, what did he just say? And then have him be held accountable for that because it so minimizes what just happened. And it's like, if you don't see the differences in how you're treating people, that in itself is part of the problem. And I'm glad that it was pointed out and that people weren't going to you know, just be quiet about it, which is characteristically, you know, you've been brought up, we're like, okay, well, we don't rock the boat. You figure out a way around it. You know, now it's like, okay, now's the time to stand up and shout. And maybe it is generational. Maybe you, you have people who haven't been brought up that way and their parents aren't going to teach them 
to just sit back and, 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 and take it. I think that's interesting to see how that is so different from maybe the way our parents brought us up or maybe our way our parents were brought up. I think that is a fascinating difference. And so, Dr. Dariotis, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the whole model minority aspect that has been applied to every Asian group that's immigrated to the U.S. and how that has played out and how you see that playing out in this moment. Well, first of all, I wanted to pick up some of the lines that were mentioned by Holly uh, and really talk about how the police response to the shootings and minimizing it or deflecting it, and also even how institutions uh, like the news media respond, uh, educational institutions, how they respond to these types of events is important for us to understand because it's part of our being able to break down systemic racism. The responses often compound the pain and the harm, right? So as Holly mentioned, this deflection by the police chief and this, this diminishment by saying that he had a bad day, it really reminded me of the Dan White Twinkie defense when he assassinated Mayor Moscone and Supervisor um, Harvey Milk in San Francisco. Those types of defenses are allowed because the community that was targeted is already considered at the, the lower end of our racialized or sexualized or gendered caste system in the United States. And so it becomes part of compounding the harm. A lot of people have asked me, is it important to make a solidarity statement at this time? To me, a solidarity statement is a really critical first step for any institution in responding to this kind of violence. It might feel like a little thing, but not doing it actually sends a really big message. And doing it should be the first step from making solidarity statements to taking allyship actions. It can feel performative or it can feel like uh, virtue signaling, but, but it, when you frame it as a first step and then more needs to come, that's a different thing. It's similar to making a land acknowledgement or declaring your pronouns. It can feel like it's just virtue signaling, but if you don't do it now, uh, you're also saying something, right? The absence has meaning. So do it. And then think to yourself, now I've done that, what more can I do? Now, you mentioned the model minority image. It's not true that this has historically always just been the situation of Asian Americans. We didn't fully you know, become born as model minorities. We were constructed as model minorities. The term model minority might have only come about in the 60s during the civil rights movement, but it was hit upon precisely because People were searching for a group to put between white and black in this country. Asians were not seen as a model minority before that time in the U.S. because we did protest. We did form unions. We did protest against massacres like the one that happened in Los Angeles in the 1800s that killed a tenth of the population of Chinese in Los Angeles. All of that historical stuff gets just disappeared under this label model minority. It's a lie. We never were model minorities. But it's a convenient lie that has been so powerful that we have even come to believe it ourselves. Keep your head down. Don't rock the boat. 
the nail that stands up gets hammered down, all of that rhetoric, it's not true. The same thing, you know, people say, oh, Japanese Americans, why did you let yourselves get interned? Why didn't you stand up for yourselves? Many Japanese Americans did stand up and protest, but the history of it got buried on purpose. Yeah. And I think, Matt, about, well, everything, right? Like slavery, uh, treatment of indigenous people across the this land, uh, the way Asian Americans are discussed, everything. History really has been sanitized and curated in a specific way. And to be now trying to correct that record and speak up about the things that we weren't taught or we don't know about or that we need to go look into. You think about uh, Asian American groups, if you think about African Americans, if you think about uh, women, everybody, we've tried so many different like, okay, we're going to protest. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, we're going to be the, we're going to take on the moniker of model minority. Okay, that didn't work. We're going to kneel. You know, that didn't work. So let me stay with you, Dr. Dariotis, and then Holly, I'm going to come to you in a moment. But to talk a little bit about ways of protesting or ways of dealing with these issues and how you see that all sort of coming together. I mean, the first thing that we're seeing our community has really gathered around is like, let's be seen, gather the data. So my colleague, Russ, Dr. Russell Jung, uh, co-founded the Stop AAPI Hate Institute, and that has allowed for uh, creating the visibility around these things. So we knew that there were these things happening. We knew that anti-Asian hate was really on the rise during the COVID-19 era because of political and media rhetoric that you know generated votes and ratings. But knowing it is one thing and having data, hard data on it is another. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're exploring the framing of Asian Americans in news and media with KCBS reporter Holly Kwan and San Francisco State Asian American Studies professor Dr. Wei Ming Dariotis. This so-called bubble of the Bay Area, we have this illusion that it's a safe bubble. It is not. Almost one quarter of the incidents reported of anti-Asian hate have been in the Bay Area. That is shocking. It should be shocking to us. Some of it is population. 30% of the Bay Area is, is AAPI. But why are our neighbors, our coworkers, and maybe even our own family members perpetrating these acts of, of, of hate against us? What is going on that they feel entitled to do that? in the Bay Area, where Asian American culture is everywhere, where Asian American holidays are taught even in public schools. So what's the disconnect? Even in the Bay Area, where we talk about all of the diversity and the beauty that we have as a diverse community, the secret is it is actually a very highly segregated place. And we don't want to acknowledge that. You go into some neighborhoods in San Francisco, like the Marina District. I personally don't even feel comfortable walking around in some neighborhoods because I know I will be looked at especially if I bring my black husband with me. And and I got to say, you know, just to claim it, I need to be more aware and I I've been thinking a lot the past few weeks. My my best friend from childhood is Taiwanese. I mean, we've known each other for most of our lives now and 
we've had a couple conversations over the years, but really having a sit down about this kind of stuff, I finally asked her last week, I said, how are you doing? And she's like, well, and she had something to say. Of course she had something to say. But my prompting was just like, oh yeah, you know, actually I would like to share with you. Here's what, here's how I feel and here's what's going on. And I'm so glad I did that. But then it also made me feel like, man, why am I not doing that more often? I think I took that as a lesson to be more uh, proactive about checking in. But Holly, I wanted to ask you, you're in the news, and this is something that I navigate with my students now, is how to cover stories and stay, not objective, because I think objectivity is in the process, we're all biased. How do you do your journalism in this context where you are also affected? And how do you navigate that? First off, sort of like the, the physicality of it, when you're out on the street, um, and if you're you know working mornings, you know it's still dark, you're always aware. You're always kind of watching your back no matter what anyway. And now it just feels like you kind of have to do that a little bit more. Um, I know maybe last week or the week before, I think Kit Doe from Channel 5 was doing a stand-up. He was getting ready to do morning hits. And I think he might have been somewhere in like the financial district in San Francisco, right on the edge of like maybe Chinatown. And he had said that somebody drove by and was like, you know, yelling racial insults out the window. And I just thought, Really? You know, I mean, I, I know that sometimes when you're out there and you've got a big bright light and a camera, you're you're a target in so many ways. But really, somebody's going to going to do that. And I wonder, is, is someone doing that because they really felt that way? Or are they doing it because they feel like they have license to do it now or they're doing it because it's the thing to do? I kind of wonder, you know, what is really behind those kinds of actions and to what extent are they going to feel like, you know, they can threaten the reporter and, and do the reporters then feel like they have to go inside? I mean, those are real things. That um, luckily, you know, our our management, our news director is, is very aware of and and asks, you know, don't go anywhere you don't feel safe. And and, and so, you know, you, you feel at least taken care of in that way. But it's also your job to, to get the story out there, because if you don't, then how are people going to know? How are they going to be able to like change their minds? How are they going to be able to realize that this is a thing and they do need to be paying attention to it? I'm glad you said that you... Um, reached out to your friend because actually a, a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a coworker who um, I'm not terribly close with, but he texted me and said, so how are you feeling about this? And I was like, wow, that's really cool that you asked about that because I don't think anybody had done that before. And, and that's not because people don't care, but you know, they're so busy doing their jobs and in their lives. And I was just was very appreciative of somebody reaching out and, and having done that. Um, because I think that you know, we all feel it differently depending on your perspective, where you live, who you see, who you have interactions with in your daily lives. And it colors how you view things. I mean, I went to a press conference in Portsmouth Square. You know, it was all covered with that bright chalk of, you know, graffiti and protect our elders and also it was it was beautiful stuff that was in the park. And, and we had... Um, Scott Wiener, and you had Phil Ting, and you had David Chu, and you had Aaron Peskin, and a lot of people that were standing up there, and like the professor said, making that statement, you know, allying with the community, you know, and I asked Phil Ting about this, and he said, you know, we wanted to make sure that people do stand up and, and report these things, because we know in the past, a lot of people said, oh, it wasn't a thing, or maybe that wasn't a hate crime, or, you know, it wasn't to the point where somebody got pushed but maybe it was a verbal assault or something. And they said, okay, they just want to forget about it and, and go about their way. And he says, no, these things are important and you do need to report them so we can get an accurate tally. He had said, don't be Asian, go ahead and report these things. You know, he even acknowledged that some of us, our parents had said, okay, you know, well, you're not hurt. So 
brush it off and, and move on. There was probably a generation of us that there was that conflict of, um, you know, when do you get to stand up for yourself? A couple of Asian-American students in my class, my Korean-American student has been very vocal, which I love, about this work. And she brings the stories in and we want to talk about them. But she's ready to do an op-ed on it. Like she's ready to say, I have a perspective. I have a stance. This is what I think. And this is what it is. And we need to call it that, which I really love and respect. And I'm so thankful for that. And I find myself saying, okay, that's not necessarily wrong. Journalistically, the way I would do it is uh, it's not up to me to say that. It's up to me to bring in the experts to say that, right? Yeah. So I try to navigate that also. Like you're, It's not like you're wrong, but how are you going to cover it? How are you going to share your work? How are you going to show people this? So I'm wondering, Holly, if you've had any experiences like that where you or anybody you know that's working in the industry has been like, hey, I, I have something to say about this? Or how are you making sure we know about this and making sure we can deal with it? Like you said, you try to be objective. It's, it's, it's always what you're trying to do. Maybe I can ask a question from a certain perspective to, to see, you know, what the response is going to be. But, you know, it's also your job to present this person's point of view. It's not my, necessarily my point of view, even though I may end up agreeing with them. I may not. I don't know. That's not your job. It's as far as covering the news. You know, you're covering, um, you know, a protest march. You're covering a press conference. These are what these people are standing up and saying. The important thing is to cover it to give the voice to those people who may not have had a voice before or didn't raise that voice or no one paid attention before. I think the news media and the media can be a powerful force. The way I could bring these issues to light is to pull in experts. And so as an example, and this is from Stop AAPI Hates Report, um, women of Asian descent have reported 2.3 times more incidents of violence than AAPI men. Forgive me to go back to the, the Atlanta story, but I feel like the one thing that we hadn't touched on yet was that moment when the chief said, oh, this wasn't about hate, it was about a sex addiction. And so the first thing that I thought with my perspective as a woman was, well, sex addictions, we all have a type, we all have proclivities, whatever that may be. And yeah, okay, it's a sex addiction, but what, it, what are his preferences? And, and so what I wanted was, I can't talk about that, I can, I can think it if I were working in these to bring in an expert who could make sense of that for me, right? Who could talk about that intersectionality for me. And and then the other piece of it was um, when you talk about, and I'm just saying the way people are viewed in society, not what's true across the board, because obviously this is a generalization, but different, you know, as, as a woman who's Italian, white mainstream, you know, men have an idea about what Italian women are like sexually um, and what Asian women are like, what Mexican women are like. There is no such thing as just being a woman. You're always a racialized woman in this society. And I think Asian American women are seen, and please correct me if I'm wrong, as more, I don't know if innocent is the right word, but maybe not as strong or not. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that that all of that Whatever it is, is wrapped up in his preferences and then, of course, in the whole act itself. Dr. Dariotis, love to get your take. It's totally, that is the image of Asian American women that we're hyper-feminized. Actually, Asians are hyper-feminized. So it's true of Asian American men as well, that they are hyper-feminized. I do an experiment with my students, or not really an experiment, but an activity. I call it the Goldilocks chart. And this came about because students would ask me why, why they saw certain patterns of interracial relationships where they would see mostly Asian women with white men. They would never really see, for example, a black woman dating an Asian man. And in fact, the data bears that out. So I'll ask students, I'll say, give me 10 adjectives to describe Asians. And it's all like soft, 
um, shy, quiet, uh, good at math, intellectual. And these are Asian American students saying what they see as the stereotypes of Asians, right? Uh, long hair, model minority kind of stereotypes. And then I asked them for 10 adjectives that they see being used to describe um, African Americans loud, aggressive, strong, tall, thick skin. And then in the middle, what are the words to describe whiteness, right? And it's all this kind of normative, right? So in the chart, in these three categories, Asian, white, and Black, Blacks are too hard, Asians are too soft, and in the middle, the white category is just right. Just like in the Goldilocks story where you've got the porridge that's too hot, porridge that's too cold, and the one that's in the middle is just right. And more masculine men can always date more feminine women. So black men can date white women and Asian women. White men can date white women and they can date Asian women. Asian men can only date Asian women because that's the only category of women that's more feminine than they are. This logic was, is constructed to define whiteness as normal and to define these other groups as outside normalcy and therefore to be subject to whatever stereotypes or images. You could replace Black folks with Latinx folks and there would be similar but different stereotypes. And in either case, Black women and Asian women are hypersexualized in different ways. To hyperfeminize Asian people is also to infantilize them. Thank you. So Holly, um, I was wondering if you wanted to respond to any of that and how how you navigate this. I thought it was interesting, the Goldilocks Index, because it, it makes me wonder whether that's self-perpetuating and how do you stop that so people aren't seen that way. Um, we, we don't keep seeing ourselves you know, and other people like that. If you look at the news and the media, um, who gets hired, especially on TV? It's like, it's the look. And, and who is it that they think that the audience wants to see? If you look at what is the, the race and the gender of, of those people, you can track it and figure out like, you know, who are the who are the news directors hiring? And usually the news director is a man, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, so you know, in order to counter this, this Goldilocks index, how do you do that? And again, maybe it is sort of a generational thing where each generation will, will be a little bit better educated, a little bit more self-aware. You know, I recognize a lot of the things that the professor was saying with, with this Goldilocks index. And I think, you know, where did I get that? Did I get that from my parents? Did I get that from the media? Did I get that from somebody putting that on me and their expectations of what I was supposed to be? How do you stop that? How do you reboot your thinking? And how do you teach that to, you know, your, your kids, your, your nieces, your nephews, the next people, so you can start to reverse that? You know, it's funny. I got to say, I, my husband's a bodybuilder, and so he's constantly watching bodybuilding videos. And I, I love, and I see it quite a bit, Asian men in these bodybuilding videos. Of course, duh, because of course there are men across whatever who like bodybuilding. But in my head, I'm like, oh, thank God, I want more images of this. In the same vein, seeing my students of Asian descent uh, speaking up, protesting, you know, claiming who they are basically and saying, this is who I am. Stop trying to tell me who I am. It just makes me, it thrills me beyond belief. Holly, what would you like to see happen from here? People protesting, people not staying silent. I think that that's a, a good start because it does allow people to stand up and shout in a way that they hadn't been seen before. And that in itself, the visibility of that will hopefully then sort of at least open people's 
of eyes if it doesn't change their minds, but at least get them to realize that this is a community that you can't be dismissing or stepping on or mistreating or minimizing. I mean, I'm glad to see it. Yeah. I mean, our students, my colleagues, they have been sharing stories of feeling nervous about letting their elders out of the home, um, knowing that family businesses are being attacked, feeling nervous about going out themselves. What we need to do is come out and protest. We need to share our voices, come out and let people know that we are experiencing pain and anger and not allow ourselves to be locked in in solitude uh, around these issues. And I, I also would invite folks to, you know, to support one another where we can take ownership, where we can take our voices, where we can take our space back and that we have members of our communities and our neighbors and the people that we work with stepping up also and saying, I'm in solidarity with you, not to protect us, not to save us, but to stand with us. That's what I would like to see. Thank you to my guests, KCBS reporter Holly Kwan and Dr. Wei Ming Dariotis, professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.